major uh, Christian leadership conference uh, in the Royal Albert Hall, hosted by Holy Trinity Brompton, HTB. All sorts of people involved in that, um, including Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm told Joyce Mayer is going to be there, if that's somebody that you know of. Um, uh, we have two, two tickets spare for Monday and one spare for Tuesday. Um, the, uh, there is a price involved, but we're quite happy to, if you just want to go, that's fine. And if you can make a donation, that's fine as well. So if you're free tomorrow and uh, you'd like to go, come and chat to me afterwards. I've got two for tomorrow, one for Tuesday. Um, it's, um, uh, it's very good. Uh, we, I went a couple of years ago and very in, inspiring and stirring and challenging stuff and uh, some great worship, some very thought-provoking speakers, uh, not just for you if you, not only for those who would sort of call themselves leaders, uh, but for all of those who are interested in actually playing their part in the life of the Christian church. So uh, if you'd like to, come and find me afterwards and we'd love to make use of those. Um, Mark chapter one is where we're going to head for a few minutes together. Just, I'm looking at the clock and realising we so because we wanted to pray for both of those things, um, we so front-loaded the service that it's already nearly quarter past. But we'll we'll um, we'll surprise the groups by going and heading into them before they're quite finished. I suspect. Mark chapter one, which is page one thousand and two, and I'm going to read to you from um, verse nine down to verse twenty. At that time. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When Jesus had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for, uh, most of all, the way in which your Holy Spirit can take your word to our hearts and help us to understand you more and take your word to our hearts and our wills and change us to respond to that love. And uh, we pray that you would give us fresh understanding of you. Uh, We pray that you would shape our our hearts and our lives to respond to that call that you place on us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I've worshipped in a few churches in my life. Um, some of them big, uh, some of them small. Um, I've read an awful lot of books about church leadership. I've been to lots of conferences, like the ones that are happening tomorrow. Um, and one of the things that I read a lot about and have experienced a lot of and hear a lot about um, is that of um, church mission statements, ways of summing up what churches are about in sort of a few pithy words and, uh, and sort of comments and phrases. 
Certain people are brilliant at it. If you've ever come across Rick Warren uh, and uh, his uh, church Saddleback in uh, America, he is just stunning at coming up with these pithy phrases uh, that if you ask any of the 15,000 people that go to their church, it is 15,000, 20,000 that go to his church, um, they will all know these key phrases that sum up uh, what, what goes on there. Uh, in the right hands and in the right church, those are absolutely uh, fantastic. The problem is that I'm, I'm a little bit allergic to them, partly because uh, I'm always thinking, well, I might think of it differently tomorrow. I might want to phrase it differently tomorrow. I don't want to set it in stone. But partly, too, because it feels at times like trying to put the cart before the horse. We make up a sort of structure, a statement, and then make everything fit it. Uh, that's always a danger. But against all type, over the last few years, we've started to... to talk about the way that we do church together here in All Souls and the way that uh, what it looks like not simply to come to church but to belong and to make a, a difference here um, using these four words we talked about count me in which we do every uh, May June time and we're starting to work towards and we've used these four words we've talked about grow serve give and tell and we've talked about the encouragement to one another to think of how in the coming year we're going to grow in our faith serve as part of a team uh, give as far as we're able financially and to tell the good news in our uh, words and in our lifestyle. And um, over these next few weeks, we're going to be uh, digging into the Bible to look at four or five um, bits of picture language, imagery, description about what it looks like and is to be a Christian in order to show that what we're trying to do with these words is not to be so much prescriptive as descriptive. What I mean by that is what we've tried to do in these words is not to come up with simply uh, you know, a set of words that, that will be a useful hook to hang some things on because these are the things we want to do in all souls. So much as can we describe what the heart of being a Christian is about and begin to sort of cash that out practically in what it looks like in the life of this church. In other words, these words are useless unless they drive us back to the Bible. They're useless unless they describe what we actually find in Scripture about what it looks like or should look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So over these next few weeks, rather than preaching these words, we're going to look at five passages of Scripture that help us to think about what it means to be a Christian. And I hope what we'll see is that in different ways, in different times, with different emphases, these words are a useful description of something of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and then towards the end of May, we're going to be giving um, one another the opportunity, as we've done the last few years, to respond and to say, well, this is how I, as a member of All Souls, as somebody who belongs here, wants to make a difference here, this is how I want to give and serve and grow and tell. So I wanted to start at the beginning with Mark chapter 1, and I wanted to start in the most obvious place, which is with the word disciple. And uh, disciple is what uh, the friends of Jesus were called. On the face of it, Jesus' conversation, his interaction with these, the people who were going to become his disciples, is completely unbelievable. Who, in their right mind, going about their everyday work, would simply drop everything and follow a stranger. I mean, you would be really worried if somebody in your place of work came in tomorrow. Well, actually, you might be worried if they came in tomorrow. If they came in on Tuesday after the bank holiday and said, I've met this amazing person. I'm, I've handed in my notice. I'm off. 
to follow them wherever they go. You'd be really worried they'd got picked up by a cult. I mean, they probably had been if that's what had happened. You'd, you'd, you'd be seriously worried that they, had, they were throwing their life away on somebody they couldn't know and for something that couldn't possibly benefit them. And it makes no sense to us at all that Jesus doesn't simply come to them and say, look, I want you to believe in me, so let me tell you who I am. We're going to sit down, I'm going to persuade you of, of me. Just believe in me. Or, like John the Baptist did, I, here's a lifestyle that I think you should be um, following. You know, you should say, sorry for the bad things you've done in the past, you should live this better life, you know, I'll come back and visit you in a few months and see how you're getting on. He does this really odd thing of coming to the, these, these men who are going about their daily business and saying, follow me. But in that time, it would have been a much more expected part of the religious life. Because you had rabbis and you had disciples. Rabbis were religious teachers. Uh, sometimes they were peripatetic. They sort of travelled the area. Sometimes they were based in one particular village or town. And they would have had disciples. Disciple is a, a word that simply comes from the Latin to learn. They were learners. They were people with a metaphorical L badge on their backs. There were people there to follow a, disciple, follow a rabbi and to learn whatever they could from them. They were quite common. If you turn over the page in your Bibles, you'll find that um, in verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? In other words, having disciples was quite common. You'd have a rabbi, somebody that you followed, and you'd have a group of disciples, a group of people who wanted to learn from them. And the point is that actually you had to be somebody to be asked to be a disciple. You wouldn't generally go up to a bunch of fishermen who were in those days the uneducated sort of bottom of the heap and say to them, come and be the disciple of a rabbi. You would usually aim for those who had some education, who'd showed some real promise, who had the potential to be rabbis themselves. What you were effectively saying to them was, come and learn from me so that you can be like me and have your own disciples in the future. That's the way it worked. So what was going on here? Why would the disciples, uh, why would these men have said yes to following Jesus? And most of all, what would they have expected from it? I mean, what did they think they were signing up to? I read um, a few months back uh, a rather brilliant sort of partial autobiography by a chap called, I think his first name is Chris Hadfield. Commander Hadfield um, is, would be his full title, um, who's an astronaut, I think retired now. And uh, he's a Canadian uh, who has had quite a few uh, months on the International Space Station and is one of the mo more senior astronauts that's been um, into space, but also one of the best known. Uh, you may have seen or heard about some rather famous YouTube clips of him playing his guitar on the space station that went viral and uh, made him very well known. And he was brilliant at communicating the science of space and did lots of interaction uh, with schools on the ground. But the thing that really struck me about reading his autobiography is just how little stuff that astronauts do in space. Now, if you were just signing up to be an astronaut and you imagine this was all about flying on spacecraft and going on the space shuttle or going to the space station, and then you had 20 years as an astronaut, you'd be sorely disappointed because probably over 20 years, you might, if you're very lucky and happen to do it at just the right point in the space program and happen to be the right person in the right place at the right time, you might 
spend six months in space out of that 20 years? You might. I think he spent a little bit more than that, but he was very lucky, he would say. Actually, he spent far more time underwater than he did in space, because, of course, the, the, the huge sort of buoyancy tanks that NASA have are the best, they, best sort of attempt they've got for um, replicating zero gravity on Earth. He spent a huge amount of time in there, huge amount of time about a computer screen, a lot of time as, a, as an administrator, um, effectively as an ambassador, uh, working with the Russians on their space program, a lot of time in education, a lot of time training. The thing is that he knew exactly what he was signing up for. He knew what was coming. It didn't come as a surprise to him. It's exactly what he wanted to do. If you were to say to somebody, or if I were to ask you, what would you be signing up for as a Christian? I wonder what we'd say. I wonder what people in general would say. For many people, the idea of being a Christian is simply living a good life. Me privately deciding to make some good lifestyle choices, not to be too mean, to be as generous as I can be, to live a nice life, to be good to my fellow human being, to treat them how I'd like to be treated, the golden rule. For other people, maybe with a bit more church background, we would describe being a Christian as believing the right things, a decision I make to believe in Jesus. For many people, the very last thing anybody would imagine about being a Christian would be that it would affect our bank balance or our possessions or our diary. And for many, many people, maybe even more, being a Christian wouldn't involve telling anybody about it. Religion is okay as long as we keep it private and to ourselves and don't bother anybody else with it. But when you look at what these people signed up for in being disciples of Jesus, none of it connects with those expectations. On every possible level, the expectation of being a disciple was far richer far wider, far deeper than what most people would imagine being a Christian looks like. And what we've actually tried to do in these four words is to describe just a little bit of the, what they were experiencing, what they were looking forward to, what they knew they were signing up for. Well, the first thing that they were signing up for is in the name, being a disciple. They were signing up for being learners. They would have had absolutely no idea whatsoever that they had arrived. Quite the opposite. This wasn't um, uh, graduation. This was enrolment. This wasn't homecoming and arrival. This was setting out on a journey. This wasn't being told, you've made it. This was being told, come on a journey. This wasn't because they knew all they needed to know about God. This wasn't because their faith was sorted. This wasn't because Jesus met them on the beach and thought, these guys have got it. They'd have known that. They knew that being a disciple had a permanent L sticker on a learner. They were there to learn. And actually, as you go through the Gospels, what you find is these disciples learning stuff, forgetting stuff, learning some more, forgetting some more, having to learn it all again, keeping on learning. And then you go into the Acts of the Apostles and you see the early church with these guys who've spent three years solidly with Jesus, still having so much to learn and never trying to hide it. There's nothing in the Bible that tries to sort of pull a veil over these early disciples of Jesus and pretend that they were perfect. All the way through, you see them as learners, people who are always on the journey. You know, there has never yet been, and there never will be, a Christian who can take the L plates off. There is no disciple who gets to become the rabbi. There are uh, absolutely re um, responsibilities laid on Christians to think about who we might encourage 
and teach and help along if they're a little bit younger in the faith or there are areas where we might be able to help them. But there's not a soul who can say, I've arrived. All of us have that learner plate on. All of us have to look at our faith and say, I want to grow, I want to change, I want to learn. So when we say about how are we going to grow in our faith? That's not a sort of special thing for all souls. That's simply describing what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to learn to be a better follower of Jesus. I want to love God more. I want to have my life shaped by him more. So the question is, how is my faith changing? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had um, an interview, not for a job, uh, for a training course that I'd love to go on. And it was a very uncomfortable experience in many different ways, but um, it was partly uncomfortable because it's 10 years since I've been interviewed for anything. Uh, the last one was here. And um, so I was sort of out of gear, but it was also uncomfortable because they asked some great questions. And one of the questions they asked me uh, was, Richard, um, what have you learnt about God in the last six months? I'm not very good with questions like that because I don't sort of store things in my head in sort of categories like that. But it was a great question. What have I learned about God in the last, last six months? You could put it lots of different ways. That's quite a cerebral way of putting it. You might say, how's your faith developed in the last six months? You might say, how's your relationship with Jesus changed in the last six months, the last year? But if even after some days of thinking about it, I couldn't answer that, that's a problem. Because like with any relationship, if I get stuck it's not about standing still, I end up going backwards. Faith isn't something that can simply be stuck and stable and set in stone because faith is fundamentally a relationship. It has to keep moving because we're changing. Our world is changing. The context in which we're living out our faith is changing. It's all about growing. So I've got a permanent learner badge on my back and therefore the question is, how am I growing? How in this next 12 months is my faith going to be different? Some of it I just won't know because it'll depend what happens in my life. What have I got to respond to? What am I going to react to? But some of it has to be proactive. How am I going to choose to grow? That's what these disciples had to do all the time. They were making a proactive choice. We are going to spend time with this rabbi because we want to learn from him. Now, don't worry. That's the one I want to spend the longest on um, before you start looking at your watches wondering um, how long we've got left. But the other three are also in here. Because the second thing that they knew they were signing up for was they knew they were not signing up for a solo ride. They were signing up to be part of something, to work alongside people. They knew they were signing up to be part of a group of disciples, not just for lots of one-to-one -one time with Jesus. And despite what people think about faith and about religion, the Christian faith has never been and will never be primarily a thing I do with God. Something occurred to me over the last couple of days, and there are plenty of people here who know their Bibles far better than me, so let me know afterwards if I'm wrong. This is what I, I noticed. I think that in the Gospels, the only time you ever find an individual disciple named on their own is when they're messing up. So let me give you some examples. Um, you've got John. Now, John, um, in uh, chapter 9 of Mark, comes to Jesus on his own, complaining bitterly that there are people casting out demons without their permission. And Jesus has to give him quite a hard time. So you got it wrong. John, on his own, 
misunderstood what it was all about. He thought it was all about, you know, they're not on our team. This is, you know, this is not playing right. And Jesus was saying, no, you're misunderstanding. These are people being released from, the, from darkness. Praise God for that. What about Peter? Poor Peter. Every time you hear Peter named on his own, he's messing up. There's Peter when he uh, ends up being rebuked by Jesus in Mark chapter 8 sort of takes Jesus on one side. That's always a bad sign in the Gospels when people want to take Jesus on one side. Peter, Peter takes Jesus on one side and says, you can't talk about dying. Don't be ridiculous. You, you, you know, you, the implication is you've, you've got to lead us to victory. You've got to sit on the throne. And Jesus has to say some really harsh words to him. Or when Peter gets himself isolated and on his own, away from the other disciples, when Jesus is being tried. And he denies him. That's what the children's groups are thinking about today. It's because he's on his own, probably. He's isolated. He's, he's away from the other disciples. And then Jesus has to get Peter on his own on the beach after he's risen from the dead, after Jesus has risen from the dead. Yes, to forgive him. Yes, to, to reinstate him. But as I was saying the other week, before he does that, he has to remind Peter of what he's done. That's why he says three times, Peter, do you love me? And of course, the greatest example of all, the worst example of all, is Judas. Jesus acts solo. He leaves the rest of the group, heads out into the darkness to betray Jesus. Now, I've not followed it through all the Gospels, but I, it, it occurred to me that actually, when Jesus sends them off, he sends them off in twos, at least. When in, the, in Acts, when you see the early church, even the greatest of the Christian leaders, Paul, never goes anywhere on his own. He always tries to find a companion to go with him. He knew that following Jesus, being a disciple, is not a solo effort. And when we go solo, when we isolate ourselves from other Christians, that's when we're in danger. That's one of the reasons that we talk about serving as part of a team. It's not actually simply because we've got lots of rotors to fill. We do have lots of rotors to fill. They seem to multiply. Every time I look around, there's another rotor to fill as, as um, All Souls grows and as we try and do more stuff. But... There's a far more important reason to serve as part of a team. It's not just about meeting somebody else's need. It's because it's by far the best place for our faith to grow. Because as we serve alongside other people, all sorts of things happen. We learn from them. We often have to serve alongside people we don't particularly like, whisper it quietly, but it does happen even in all souls. We step out of our comfort zone, but we don't do it on our own. We see God at work as we work in teams. The disciples would never have thought for a moment this was about them and God. They knew it was about them and the other disciples. Faith isn't a solo effort. It's about belonging, being part of a team. Two more things, much more briefly. Thirdly, these men knew right from the off that what they were being asked to do wasn't just something in their heads, nor something in their hearts. It was about the whole lives. Why? Because Jesus didn't say, believe in me, or simply live a nicer life. He said, leave that, follow me. They had to leave their boats and their nets. They weren't fishing for fun, for leisure. This was their livelihood. As I've said many times before, these are men who literally from the very earliest stage, they could have had any imagination what they would do with their lives. From the age of two or three or four, they would have known this is what they were going to do for the whole of their lives. They'd have been out on boats from probably before they could walk. They would be learning how to sail 
from when they could walk. They would be learning how to mend nets from the youngest age. This was their livelihood. This was money. This was food. This was who they were. And Jesus says, leave that. Follow me. Our faith has everything to do with everything. There's not one part of our lives that isn't to be brought to Jesus' feet. That doesn't mean that all of us are called to leave what we're doing now and do something different. That does happen. But it does mean that we need to be willing to come to Jesus with all that we do and all that we are and all that we have in the bank account and all that we drive or wear or where we live and say to Jesus, I'm your disciple. This is all up for grabs. And finally, they knew from the off that they weren't going to do something private. Jesus said to them, verse 17, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. He's using, a, obviously, the metaphor of them fishing for fish, and he's saying to them, look, I'm not asking you simply to come and enjoy a religious lifestyle with me, to learn great truths, to worship beautifully, to live holy lives. I'm calling you to spread good news, to tell and to be the good news of the coming of God's kingdom, that people can know God for themselves. That's what they knew they were up for. This wasn't just about them living a nicer life or a more holy life or a more religious life. This was about them being called to go tell. I wonder whether, when we're looking at our Christian lives, whether we ever think, I'm doing the same as James was doing, or I'm doing the same as Peter was doing, or I'm doing the same as Mary or Martha were doing. I'm doing it in a different context, at a different time, 2,000 years later, but I am a disciple of Jesus. So when I want to look at how my life is, when I want to look at what it means for me to be a Christian, I'm not going to look primarily at what Rich, how Richard might describe it in four words or any other Christian book or strategy document or vision statement. I want to go back and see how those first disciples lived. What did it mean for them to follow Jesus? What did they think they were signing up for? and to set my life up against theirs. Say, does it look something the same? Am I willing to think about how my faith is going to grow and develop? Am I willing to be part of, to belong to the whole, not simply me and God? Is the whole of my life up for grabs, the, the money in the bank and the, my status and my job? And do I really believe this is good news? Good news that others need to hear good news that I can tell with my words, good news that I can be with my life. That's what we're going to be thinking about over the next few weeks as we look at some different images and pictures of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as we work towards um, this month where we think about um, saying, count me in to the life of God here in all souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way in which Jesus called these people to be his disciples. Thank you for the warts and all uh, portraits of them in the Gospels. Uh, thank you for that challenge to, to be learners, to be followers. And we do pray that you would, by your spirit, put your finger on those parts of our lives that we've kept sort of locked away, uh, that we haven't offered to you. 
that haven't been shaped by being your disciples. And we pray for us as a church, that as individuals belonging together as a community of faith, we would go on learning what it is to be a community of disciples of the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship together.